Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John 2, 3 through 6. We know that we have, have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to welcome you once again to our assembly. Uh, Gabriel, could you give me a little bit uh, more oomph in the mic? Thanks. Um, Grateful that you're here. Today is a pretty special day. Uh, We're beginning a new series of lessons in conjunction with our Bible classes. During our sermon time, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And the title of that sermon series that we're going to be entering into is A Beautiful Disruptive Presence. We're going to be looking at the teaching that gives uh, identity and gives form to what a disciple of Jesus looks like in the world. As you know, too, especially if you were in our Bible classes this morning, our theme, which we began this morning, is Draw Near, which is about learning how to incorporate in everyday life the practices and the habits that lead to a life that is continually drawing near to God and becoming that beautiful, disruptive presence in the world. And so what we're asking you to do is to be a part, and we do this you know, all the time. We want you to commit to being in worship every Sunday as we learn what the life of a disciple looks like. We want you also to commit to being in Bible class to learn the biblical spiritual practices that help us, uh, teach us how to be what we ought to be as a disciple of Jesus. We're also, and if you'll pull out your sermon outline, you'll see You'll see on the front the, uh, the order of worship as well as the sermon outline for this, this study that we're beginning on Sunday mornings. But on the back, you will see, give 10, draw near to God. We're asking you not only to be in worship and in Bible classes over the next 13 weeks and for the rest of your life through eternity, but we're also asking you to give 10 minutes four times a week to incorporating these practices. And a way to remind you to do that, everyone in Bible class this morning, if you weren't in Bible class, these uh, little blue bands that I'm wearing uh, will be a reminder to draw ten and or to, to draw near to God and to give ten. That's going to be our rallying cry for the next 13 weeks, is to give ten minutes a day. That's just the beginning place. All of life is to be given to God, but we want to incorporate these practices. We want to draw near to God. For some, these will be very, very new, and so we're asking you four times a week, give 10 minutes to God. Let's pray. Father, we have been singing and we have gathered around the table that your Lord gave to us to celebrate a meal that reminds us profoundly that he died to save us from our sins, that he died in order that we would have home with you. And that one day he is going to come back and to bring us face to face into your presence. We also, Father, have heard scripture. And all of these things would make no sense whatsoever unless they were true. We believe with all of our heart that these are true. And that they are life-changing. 
And as we go into this study of the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching direct from your Son, Jesus, we are asking you to give us the eyes and the ears to discern it, to see it, to hear it, and to apply it to our lives. And we do this, Father, only by your help and by your power, working with our desire to be the disciple of Jesus we are called to be. And this we ask with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. When a kid is growing up, what kid likes chores around the house? When making a bed, I myself would ask, what is the minimum requirement here for this bed to move from not being made to being made enough? When it came to cleaning the bathroom, I would ask, what is the minimum clean bathroom requirement here? And I would get a very clear and direct answer from my mother. The struggle, though, with minimum requirement moves from chores to school. What is the least I have to do to pass this class, the least effort to give in order to get a passing grade? I remember having a conversation with my dad about a grade on a report card years and years, you know, really now at my age, decades ago. And I said, Dad, a C is a passing grade. What's the big deal? I passed. Aren't you proud? I'll never forget what he said. He said, yes, a C is a passing grade. But you are an A student, and slacking will never get you far in this life. But you know what's even more important than that? You're cheating yourself of a knowledge that will affect you the rest of your life. I wanted to say trigonometry, but he was right, and I could see the wisdom. The struggle with minimum requirements moves from schools to relationships. What is the minimum boyfriend requirement to still have a girlfriend. I have a lot of stories to tell you, but I won't. But I think that at some point, Ellen must have thought to herself, you know, they don't make boyfriends the way they used to. The struggle with minimum requirements makes its way even into the faith. There was an incident that took place at a church I worked with more than nearly 40 years ago that has stayed with me. At the invitation song, there was a middle-aged couple that came down with their teenage daughters, two daughters who were in their young teens. I had been at that church a couple of years. I had never seen them before. Didn't have a clue who they were. Had never seen them in worship. Had never seen them in any kind of a church event. Had never seen the girls at a, at a youth event. I had never seen them before. Did not have a clue as to who they were. But when they got down to the front, I asked the father, how can we help you? And he said, well, it's time for the girls to be baptized. They're of age. We didn't baptize them until we had a chance to talk to them about what it meant to be baptized. There is an ongoing struggle to keep our understanding of salvation from shrinking down to the minimum entrance requirements. To get into heaven, that terminology, minimum entry requirements, is, is not original with me. But the problem is that nowhere in the Bible do we ever read Jesus preaching, 
these are the minimum entry requirements to enter into God's heaven. Instead, Jesus preached about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the God of heaven. In Mark chapter 1, we're told by Mark, John Mark, that when John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God, saying the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into Galilee teaching in their synagogue the good news of the kingdom while healing every disease and sickness among the people. In Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount that we're embarking in a study on this morning, he says, seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. In Luke chapter 9, as Jesus is sending out the twelve, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to bring healing to sick people. Question, what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? This is what he was preaching. Now, you could spend the rest of your life studying the implications and the nuances of the kingdom of God. But simply put, the kingdom of God is wherever the will of God reigns supreme. And His creation and creatures flourish. When the kingdom of God comes to bear on a human heart, that person is blessed. It doesn't always mean that their life gets easier but it means that they now have a relationship with their Creator that is a blessing for all of life throughout all of life. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that prayer. Jesus preached that the kingdom of God is good news because human beings, through Jesus, can experience God's presence, that they can revel in God's love, that they can live by God's power, enjoy God's favor, depend on God's presence, to delight in God's goodness and rely on God's promises. And oh yeah, it also includes forgiveness of sin. And not just forgiveness, but that sin is put in a place where God will never remember it. And not only that, the gift of the Holy Spirit. God is making an investment in your life to change you, and to empower you to be the human being that you were always intended to be. I think of Ephesians chapter 2. We've talked about this before. There is, in that first chapter of Ephesians, God is saying that God, uh, Paul is saying that God has put His Spirit in you, not only as a seal, which marks you as a true, uh, a true son or daughter of God, but it's also that earnest money. When you put earnest money down on a house, and then you decide to renege on the deal, what happens to that earnest money? You lose it. God gives you His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 1, as earnest money, which means that if God reneges on any promise that He has made in Christ, like that earnest money when you put money down on a house, He loses His Holy Spirit, which means that God ceases to be God. He forgives you. And he gives you the great assurance of his promise. And on top of that, he takes away the fear of death as an enemy. You know, if you have ever bought a used car in in, uh, probably the last couple of years, you probably know of a website called Car Gurus. And Car Gurus, I mean, they have this massive database of all of these cars 
that are for sale, new ones and mainly used ones in, in across the United States. If you were to go in the San Antonio database, you would find this car that you would want. And Car Gurus basically gives you all of the deals and they rate them as, you know, this is a really bad deal for you. Or this is a fair deal for you. Or this is a good deal. Or this is a great deal. If the kingdom of God showed up on car gurus, it would be rated the best deal ever offered to humans. That is the kingdom of God. And to be clear, it's not just about forgiveness of sin. It's about a changed life. When that Nicodemus showed up in the middle of the night after a long day at work and saying hello to the kids and to the wife and having dinner, he goes to visit Jesus because he's got questions that are jumping around in his mind and they will not let him go. And he starts off by saying, Jesus, we know that you're a great guy and Jesus cuts to the chase. And he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are what? Born again. Which means a new life. Which means entering the kingdom of God is a new way of living, which is discipleship. So what, are, what is at the beginning of all of that? that? That learning to live in the kingdom. The first is this. You let His, that is Jesus' life, define your life. And it's knowledge. What do you think about Jesus? What do you understand to be true about His life and about His words? In Second Peter chapter 1 Peter is telling the church that God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our what? Knowledge of who? Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Let me ask you a question. What do you know to be true about Jesus? What do you believe about the Christ? Do we consider Jesus to be the most capable individual who ever lived? Do we consider him to to be the most intelligent person? More intelligent than Einstein. More intelligent than Mark Absher. Do we consider him to be the most intelligent person? I mean, think for a moment about what is revealed to us in Scripture. He is the most intelligent person who ever lived. He knew about matter beyond the subatomic particles and could turn water into what? Wine. He knew about how the body is animated. How your body is animated and he could bring dead tissues and dead organs back to life like he did with Lazarus. When he was walking through a crowd, people would fight through those crowds just to touch the fringe of his garment. Desperate people were always seeking him out. He was an amazing speaker and the crowds were amazed and heard him gladly. He was available to anyone, whether a tax collector, a divorcee, an adulterer, poor, rich, in their right mind or out of it, wherever he went, he made things better. He was was the most emotionally mature human being who ever lived. Not once did he drop into the fetal position because his, his teaching was being challenged. He was always able to tell the truth and even the hard truths about what it means to be his disciple and what it means to be living their particular life, but he always did it in love. There was something about him that when he said, go and sin no more, people felt blessed. And they'd say, okay. 
He never lived in anxiety. He would say, the birds have nests, foxes have dens and holes, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Never anxious. Those little kids, they would come and they would crawl into his lap, unafraid. He would enter into the grief of others and would weep himself over the death of a good friend. He would bless people until their lives were right side up. Even though the Pharisee life was out of sync with him, Jesus would love a Pharisee more profoundly than a Pharisee could ever love another Pharisee. And could and would love the ungodly more than the ungodly could and would love each other. And when they put him on that cross, he could and did say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His life was marked with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and wisdom and empathy and courage. He was a beautiful, disruptive presence in the world. Never a human being like him. So the question is, does your knowledge of Jesus' life create an overwhelming and dynamic desire to be like him? If so, then you give up your life for his. Your knowledge of him leads to a decision. You give up your life for his. To enter the kingdom of God means that you have to give up the kingdom of me. To enter the kingdom of God means that you have to give up the kingdom of me. What has the kingdom of me ever done for you lately? Paul would put it this way. He would say, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But, say it with me, Christ lives in me. I've been crucified so that, say it with me, Christ lives in me. Let's say it again, but with some some enthusiasm. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, there's uh, this thing that writers on the spiritual life uh, talk about and describe. It's called the triangle of sufficiency. And it is, as you grow in Christ, there is this, this sort of this, this triangle that, uh, that sort of bears out what is happening in your life. And the triangle is faith and trust, death to self, and love. And what they mean by that is, uh, think about it this way. You, you're coming to faith in God, and uh, one day, you know, there's, a, there's this, this, this movement towards faith and trust in God, and you taste God, as the psalmist and Peter would write, you taste that the presence of God is good. And so you decide, I want a little bit more of that. So you die to self to make more room in your heart for there to be God. And as through faith and trust, God enters more into your heart, then you taste that and it's fantastic and you want even more of it. So you make more room in your heart and and you see what's happening here. All of a sudden, the God who is love begins to abide in you and abide in him. And you are a person of trust and faith in God. And you are a person who has died to self in order for Christ to live in you. And you have become a person of love because the God of love abides in you. You're giving up your life for his. And then finally... You train your life to look like his life. 
It's an action. And think about it this way. Imagine how Jesus would live if he lived your life. If, if, if the Christ had your DNA. Five foot seven, blue eyes, strawberry blonde hair, minister. What would Jesus look like? If, what would Jesus be like if he had your family? He was married to the person that you're married to. He is the parent of the kids that you have. What would he be like if he had your family when it comes to serving and forgiving and loving and being patient and all of those things? Or what would he be like if he had your job? He had your boss. Or he had your colleagues. Or if he had your clients. What if he had your body? You know, that's, that's, that's quite an eye-opening thing to think about. But there's the definition of discipleship that we're going to use. Discipleship is living like Jesus in every area of your life. It, it's learning how to do everything, whether in word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And one of the reasons that we are given His Holy Spirit is because doing that is not natural and fallen human beings. The Bible says that that's one of the reasons sanctification being made holy is one of the reasons that you have the Spirit. The other is that the training is necessary. In 2 Peter 1, Paul tells, or excuse me, Peter tells the church to make every effort. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 that you're to train yourself to be godly. Jesus says it this way in Luke chapter 6, a pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully, what? Trained, will be like his teacher. In a couple of minutes, we're going to sing an invitation song. And the invitation is is for those who have never entered the kingdom of God. It's an invitation for you to enter the kingdom of God. And we're going to ask during the singing of that song to come down and to speak to some shepherds about how you do that. But it's also an invitation for those who have not been living necessarily as a disciple, understanding what our salvation is all about, to start living in the kingdom of God. And that we would invite you to do when we sing that invitation song. But before we do that, um, recently I was, like you, driving in San Antonio, saw a homeless man. He had a cardboard sign, says, hungry, need food. And myself, like you, so blessed, want to do something. I usually have a a wad of $1 bills in my ashtray. I give a $1 bill or water. Some of you give um, the care bags out. But it dawned on me that more than anything else, well, that homeless fell it needed was a new life. What if I, you know, driving up, I rolled down the window and I said, hey, besides the, the bottle of water, here's what I'm going to offer you. I'm going to offer you resources and safety and health and shelter and clothes, and a job, and a family, and friends. All of the things that make your life joyful, and meaningful, and purposeful. 
But there's only one stipulation. You got to stop being homeless. What would you think if he said, ah, no thanks. I prefer the, the, the bottle of water and that buck just to get me through today. My friends, at Christ offers us not only what gets us through the day, but a different kind of life that is rooted in a different kind of kingdom. There is uh, this statement in the AA Big Book. We have folks that uh, in our church family that attend Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to say I love those folk. They have learned to be honest and truthful about their life and what they need for health. There's a line in the big book. Uh, kind of been resonating in my mind when I came across it a couple of months ago. The line is this. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. This is why Christ calls us to pick up our cross and to follow him and to be filled with him and to faithfully represent him to a world of homeless people. Our lives depict a joyful citizenship in God's heaven and our lives sparkle like stars in a dark, dark sky. Our lives chase away the shadows with the light of his presence and our lives make his presence known filling the earth with the knowledge of God like the waters cover the sea. The world, our city, our community needs more than a church of half-measure Christians. Half-measures avail nothing. And the hope of the world is for the church. The people that say that they are not only in Christ, but they represent Christ is for the church to be a beautiful, disruptive force and presence in which Jesus shines brighter than the sun in the highways and the byways and the homes and the offices and the schools and the prisons where there is war and a lack of injustice or where there is a lack of peace and where there is injustice and every form of malice. As disciples of Jesus, we say, step into the light of His love. We say, step into the light of His grace. The kingdom of God is available to all. Let's stand and sing. For the light of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness shining. Jesus.